0: Father from this place we bless you from our hearts we thank you for the privilege of knowing you of being able to love you with all of our heart all of our mind all of our soul and all of our strength thank you for your willingness to create this family called the body of Christ and the family of Christ and to make us a part of it. We thank you for your word that we're going to study this evening. And Lord, we pray that we wouldn't just help us not to do it as some intellectual exercise, but that you would use this time to deepen our understanding of you and what is important to you And in that deepening of our understanding to deepen our relationship with you. We pray that you'd use your word tonight to burn away anything within our lives that are unworthy of you and the life that you've called us to. And we pray, Lord, that what is in our life that you've put in there that can be wavering or needs to be strengthened, that you would strengthen and affirm those things tonight. And that's the work of your Holy Spirit that we ask for this evening, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. Matthew chapter 22 this evening, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with... Bibles, and if you wave and get their attention, they will put a Bible in your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you tonight. We pick things up in chapter 22, verse 15, but we've been away from uh, this section of Scripture for a couple of weeks And so we want to recount at least a a sentence or two, a little bit about what we find ourselves in the middle of. Jesus is in the final week of his life before his death upon the cross for our sins. He is in a public place. You say, what would he, if you had a week to live, how would you spend it? Well, Jesus knew he had a week to live. He knows about his resurrection, but how did he spend his time? He spent that week in Jerusalem rising early in the morning, going into the courtyards of the temple, and then teaching whoever was there that wanted to be taught. And that's how the rabbis would do it. They would go into the courtyards in the morning. They would teach, kind of nice uh, for a congregation or a group of Christians. It's almost like having podcasts today that are so uh, widely available to us. We can pick out what rabbi or what teacher, so to speak, that ministers to us and download that. and. Listen to what they have to say in their handling of the word, and that 's what ha- would happen. A variety of teachers would go into the courtyards associated with the temple, they would begin to teach, and then the crowd would gravitate to whoever it is that they wanted to listen to or that they could hear god 's voice through and so Jesus has this very large crowd that is gathered around him and the Jewish religious leaders come and they confront him. This is, a very, this is all very public what is happening here in chapters 21, 22, 23. Jesus had just got done clearing uh, the temple of the money makers and the, the money changers and the people that were gouging people for buying animals for uh, sacrifice at the temple. And the religious leaders came to him and said, who gave you this authority to do what it is that you've done? What seminary, what degree, what higher religious authority do you have? And so began this discussion. They interrupted Jesus' teaching. Now everything that's going on is public. And these people that came to hear kind of a homily or to hear the teaching concerning God from Jesus. They've heard that from him, but now they're seeing this conversation occur between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders, and I mean, their eyes are this big, uh, just like our, ours are as we read the passage and understand a little bit about the context. And so there's some been some back and forth. I'm not going to get into what we've covered in the last week or two, but now the Jewish religious leaders... Uh, Each one of the main sects of Judaism, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees who were kind of one group, the Sadducees and then the Herodians, each take a turn now at trying to publicly uh, humiliate Jesus by asking him a question or posing a hypothetical situation to him in order for him uh, to lose face or to lose support. Again, Jesus is even this late in his ministry before the cross. He is wildly popular with the common people. But the religious leaders, they hate him, and they are uh, plotting his death. And so what they want to do in the face of his wild popularity They attempt to pose questions that they can then pose to him that no matter what he answers related to the question, half of his following will be disappointed by what he answers, the other half will be approving, and it will split his popularity and split his following. This is the intention of what they're trying to do. Isn't it interesting, these guys have been hounding, these are some of the great great minds. Their minds are very, very misdirected. But the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees and the scribes, these were not stupid men. Uh, they were very, very clever men. They were very intelligent men. They were kind of uh, brought out from the ranks and giving these positions. These positions weren't just given to anyone. They were sharp people. And here they are three and a half years into Jesus' public ministry, and they are still trying to find a fault in him. They haven't been able to find it in three and a half years now, less than a week of his life left, and they're still trying to trap him and find a fault in his uh, life, which is an exercise in absolute frustration because no one will find a fault in his life or in his teaching. And so verse 15, then the Pharisees, who were the more legalistic and the more Uh, kind of conservative sect among the Jews, they went and they plotted together about how they could come up with some kind of a means to entangle Jesus in His uh, talk. And so they want to form a question that no matter what He says, they will lose Uh, he will lose no matter what he says and answer. And so they sent to him uh, their disciples along with the Herodians. The Herodians were a sect of religious Jews that thought the answer was uh, to unite themselves with kind of the political powers uh, of the day. And so they bring this question now to Jesus. Now again it's fascinating because when we read the question in a moment, and again this is familiar territory for many, but many people are reading it for the first time and so when they have come up with this question that they're going to pose to him they think they've got him it's a it is a go left or go right it is a yes or no question and no matter what he answers between those two it is going to divide his support now listen you again with the pharisees the pharisees were very concerned about their reputation about their public presentation. They would never ever pose a question to Jesus publicly unless they thought it was a slam dunk and it was a win-win. They have no way of losing in this uh, discussion that they're going to initiate with Jesus. This is the confidence they have in the question that they're about to ask. And so they come to him and they say, teacher, we know that you are true. All right, well, then why aren't you one of my disciples? This is just slimy old flattery, you know. It's funny where people come up and they say a bunch of nice things, and then, you know, as much as you want to believe it, <laughs> sometimes it reaches a point where you go, uh-oh, oh, I think I'm being set up for something here. And uh, they were trying to do that with Jesus. Get him to lower his guard here and trust them as if this was a, you know, an honest question. Teacher, we know that you are true and you teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone. That is, you're not a respecter of persons. You tell people the truth no matter who they are for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us then, therefore, here's our question to you. We're deeply interested in your answer. Um, Tell us, therefore, what do you think is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar uh, or not? And, uh, and here is the question that is posed that was a highly debated question among the Jews. The Herodians felt that it was okay. The Pharisees felt that it wasn't okay to do that. And, and so you had a, a group among the Jews that felt, no, we should not pay taxes uh, to Rome, Uh, at all to Caesar because it's an acknowledgement of, you know, it it is a a submitting ourselves to them and their domination of the land of Israel at this time. And so if Jesus uh, says, yes, it's lawful to pay taxes, then the loyalist among the Jews, the most zealous among the Jews, would look and say, he's no Messiah, and they would reject him. If he said, no, it isn't proper to pay taxes to Caesar, then they would have made a beeline to the Roman. Officials and say you got a rabbi over here who's teaching that it's okay not to teach, uh, not to uh, you know pay taxes to Rome, and he'd end up getting arrested in that way. So it looks foolproof. It's not a matter of whether they're going to win; it's just a matter of which side is Jesus going to go on and and uh, and and then reveal the victory to them. And Jesus perceived their wickedness, and he realizes the whole thing is just a setup. And he said to them, why do you test me, you hypocrites? You come, you know, giving the impression that you're asking an honest question when you're not, and so you're acting here. You're Uh, one thing inwardly, another thing outwardly, which is what a hypocrite is. So he should show me the tax money, the money that you would pay taxes in in the Roman world, and that was always a Roman coin. And so somebody produced for Jesus a denarius, which was a, a common Roman coin. And Jesus said to them, whose image and inscription is on this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So he doesn't give them a yes or no as they, as they anticipated. He said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar. Render unto Caesar what bears Caesar's image. And so pay your tax money. And there's nothing wrong with that. And it's a strong statement really even for us as Christians today. There's nothing wrong or unspiritual or compromising on our part to pay taxes to the government that pro- provides us with uh, international safety, public safety within the nation that we live in, and so forth. And so Jesus said, go ahead and give Caesar your tax money, but render unto God the things that are God. And so whose image do we bear? And, and uh, Jesus is talking with religious leaders so he knows they're going to follow him. Give to Caesar what bears his image, but give your life to the one Uh, whose image you bear and whose image do we bear? We bear the image of God. Man was created in the image of God, we're told in Genesis. And so we are never to give to government or give to man what belongs only to God, and that is our lives. So pay your taxes to Caesar, he said, but never give Caesar your life. Give your life heart, mind, soul, and strength to the one whose image you bear, uh, even after the fall, the image of God. And when they heard these words that he had spoken, they marveled and they left and they went their way. They, this is like a bomb went off. They, They can't believe that this thing went the way that it went. This was a slam dunk, and they were going to go down to Starbucks and have uh, Viente lattes or whatever it might be uh, to to celebrate it. And they marveled. Even his enemies had to marvel at not only how he had slipped what he had slipped in terms of their trap, but then he had turned it into a teachable moment uh, for them and also for the crowd that was there. And the same day, the Sadducees... They decided they wanted to trap Jesus as well. The Sadducees were the rationalists of their day. They were the theological liberals. They did not believe, as we'll see here, uh, as it says here, who say there is no resurrection. They came to Jesus and then they're going to pose this hypothetical question of Him. The Sadducees were the theological liberals of uh, their day. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the supernatural. Um, they essentially anything that they couldn't do or that a human being couldn't do, they didn't recognize it. And basically, uh, liberal theology, even to this day, and as it was in those days, is essentially to worship the limitations of mankind. When you go into a liberal uh, Christian denomination that doesn't believe in the deity of Christ, they don't believe in the miracles uh, of the Bible and so forth... It's, it's because they are imposing upon God and upon His Word and upon Jesus their own limitations. Liberalism is always the essentially the worship of myself, of my own beliefs and of my own limitations, and that's, that's what they did. We will not believe that even God can do what is humanly impossible to do. Well, why would I want to serve or follow a God uh, that isn't bigger than me? Otherwise, I might as well just worship myself And uh, so, but this is where they were, and I'm not going to get off on all that. You say you already did. Okay, I'm backing off. So they come, the Sadducees do, they don't believe in resurrection, and so they asked him, they give him this hypothetical. Teacher Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his his widowed wife and and raise up offspring for his brother. And this was a part of the law of Moses. If you had several brothers and one of them, uh, let's say the oldest brother married, uh, which is the hypothetical they're going to put out here, if the oldest brother married and he died before uh, a child was produced from that marriage, then according to the law of Moses, the next uh, youngest uh, brother or the nearest blood relative would then marry her, take her as wife, so to speak, in order that she would then become pregnant have a child, and, uh, and that child, remember, no Social Security in those days. Your family, your children were kind of your Social Security in old age, but uh, they would, uh, the, there, there would be that marriage that would occur until a mare, male child would be born so that, even more important than security in old age, so that the brother's name would not be lost. Uh, in human history and specifically in the history of the Jews. Remember, they're all looking for the Messiah perhaps coming through their lineage. Their lineage was important. Their name was important. And so the law of Moses um, spoke to that. And so in light of what Moses had taught, they said, "'Now there were with us seven brothers.'" And uh, the first, he died after he had married, and having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother, and likewise the second also. And he died, and then the third, and even to the seventh. Is this what they call a black widow? I don't know, you know, uh, the deal here. I mean, everybody's testing. now. I'll just… I'll open the tuna tonight and uh, and make it myself. Thank you. So likewise, each of them is in that situation, each marries her, and there is no child. And last of all, uh, the woman died. She probably said, thank God. I mean, (laughs) you know, get get out of here on this. But uh, therefore, they say, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. They were all married to her. And basically, their question is one of ridicule. They didn't believe in resurrection and uh And so forth and uh, and all, and so they 've posed this thing to make uh, resurrection, heaven, this kind of thing to look anti-intellectual, to look foolish. And so uh, they pose this out there, and here they are, and how can, in the world can there be a resurrection when lo- Moses says in the law here, and then we all get into heaven and you've got this one wife, and you've got these seven brothers, and who's going to be married in eternity? And then who are the other six that aren't going to be married in eternity? And they felt that the whole thing raised these kind of impossible questions and made, uh, made the idea of believing in, in Resurrection to be foolishness. Jesus answered and he said to them, You're mistaken. I like it in the old King James. You do err. The crowds got like, oh, where's this one going? Marty Feldman eyes. Wow, you do err. Again, nobody talked to these men this way. And he said, You do not, you do err. Number one, not knowing the scriptures. And then number two, nor the power of God. And that is the failure of Sadducees in that age and in this age. All liberal denominations that explain away the miraculous and the supernatural of the Bible, they do err on two fronts. Number one, they do not know the Scriptures and accept what's in there. And number two, they do not know the power of God. And God's power is greater uh, than ours. So we ought to accept you know the miraculous and so they would have heard this you do air not knowing the scriptures nor the power of god ouch and then jesus said for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angel the are like angels of god in heaven now what's fascinating in verse thirty is they don't believe in angels and they don't believe in resurrection and jesus just talks to them flat out plain as if resurrection and angels are real. And so he's taking, I mean, the weakness of their position. He's no longer on trial now. He's got them, uh, them on trial. He said, "'For in the resurrection they neither uh, marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. In heaven there is no marriage.'" And this is why he says to them, you do err, not knowing the Scriptures. What they did is they assumed that because marriage is an institution of God in this life, that it must be continued in heaven. That was their assumption. That was nowhere to be found in the Word of God. And so they are operating and putting this whole hypothetical together on, not on the basis of something that is solid in Scripture, but on the basis of their own kind of belief. And Jesus confronts them with that. Now, this idea that we will not be married in heaven is exciting to some people, and it's uh, disappointing to other people, depending upon the quality of marriage, I think, sometimes. Highly disappointing to me. But... What we do know is in heaven there's no need for procreation in heaven for sure because there's everlasting life. We also know that whatever is going to be involved in the worship of Jesus, the worship of God, uh, the beauty, the majesty of that scene that... Whatever might be the beauties and the joys uh, physically of a marriage relationship, even emotionally and mentally and spiritually, will be dwarfed by whatever we experience in heaven. So there will be no marriage. Uh, in heaven, and but we will be like angels of God in heaven. We, it's not that we will be angels in heaven, but we will be like angels in that angels don't marry as well. But concerning the resurrection, and here he is, he's just talking like, oh, for a tape of that. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read which was what was spoken to you by God? And here he quotes Exodus chapter 3 verse 6 where God declared, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then Jesus applies the verse by saying, God is not the God of the dead but of the living. When, when God declares this, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been dead for hundreds of years. And yet, when God speaks of them to Moses, he declares that he is currently, present tense, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In other words, they are alive. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And so, speaking of the fact that here, right in the law of Moses, it clearly uh, reveals the fact that there is resurrection, there is life after this one, and as Jesus applies it, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, and I mean now, this crowd is getting, it's no longer a multitude, now it's multitudes. I'd hate to be like somebody else trying to teach up there, you know, in the area of the temple while this is all going on. They cleared out all over there to listen to what's happening, and the multitudes heard it and they were astonished at his teaching. I mean, these religious leaders were like the Wizard of Oz where you got this woo, you know, and this funny little man back behind here, and they're getting exposed in this. Nobody. Number one, nobody confronted the Jewish religious leaders of that day. There was too heavy of a price to pay for it. Jesus is about to pay that price. And, and then second, nobody, you know, could answer them. Nobody had the time to become a student of the Bible in the way that they did, but here... Uh, Jesus is able to do that and speaks to them and they were astonished. But when the Pharisees, they heard that He had silenced the Sadducees, they then gathered together and they're going to take one more shot at this thing. And uh, one of them, a lawyer, and don't think of like a lawyer who is the way we think of lawyers, a lawyer in the New Testament was someone who was an expert in the law of Moses. So they get this lawyer and that's uh, uh, numbered among the Pharisees, and the lawyer asked Jesus a question, but it wasn't an honest question. They were testing him. And here's the question that he poses on behalf of all of the Pharisees Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? This was a subject of great discussion among the Jewish rabbis and Jewish religious leaders. There are 613 laws in the law of Moses, and they would argue about and debate which is the single greatest law of those 613? And so again, the idea is that he will pick one, and in picking one, he will displease a portion of his following who don't like the choice that he's made. It's a, it's a divide and conquer is what they're attempting uh, to do here. So they think no matter what he does, he's he's done for here. It's going to at least make a dent in his popularity. And Jesus then said to the lawyer, here's number one. You want the greatest law in the law, of, uh, in the law? Here it is. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5, the great Shema, the Jewish Shema. And that is commandment number one, as Jesus said, this is the first and great commandment. And then he says, I'll go ahead and throw in a second one if you guys want to ask me next. Okay, what's the second one? He says, to the free. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself." And here he quotes from Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18. And then Jesus' commentary on this is, on these two commandments hang, it's an interesting word for Jesus to choose, hang all of the law and the prophets. He declares that the entirety of the Old Testament, all of the law of Moses, all of the prophets can be encapsulated in the obedience of those two commandments, to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then to love our neighbor as our self. And, and uh, it, it encapsulates everything concerning uh, the Old Testament uh, uh, there. When he speaks here and he says, on these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets, the word hang is an interesting one. It means to hang. It also means to crucify and so loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength speaks of our vertical relationship with God, uh, and but for every Christian, we're not only to have a vertical relationship with God, we're also to have a horizontal relationship with our fellow man out of that vertical relationship. And so loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength is a vertical relationship with God. The second commandment had to do with our horizontal relationship with our fellow man. And, of course, in in putting those two things together, the vertical and the horizontal, you have a cross. And the reason that Jesus speaks of it in this kind of imagery is because it was only His death upon the cross that allows, gives us both the will to do and the power to uh, do in terms of keeping both of those commandments. We could no more keep those commandments in and of ourselves than we could eat all of the chairs in this room. Uh, That wasn't a very well thought out illustration, was it? But it just came to mind uh, right here in case you're starving for an in and out or something like that. It's sated you on that. But it would be impossible we are able to keep the two commandments, and it's the point he's making to these Pharisees. Nobody can keep the law of Moses or the prophets. It is going to, that is going to be handled, uh, related to the cross. And then through our faith in Christ, we're going to receive a will to do and the power then to live those two commandments. You notice that he says that he speaks of these two commandments and uh, the loving God and then loving uh, our neighbor as ourself. There isn't a third commandment. And the reason that I mention this is because of the selfism of our culture. Uh, Thirty years ago, when I was starting out as a pastor, the whole self-esteem movement was just starting in public education and in the United States, and it was making really heavy inroads into... Uh, Christianity as well. And so the idea was that if I have any kind of problems, it's because I don't love myself enough and so forth. And so uh, what they came to here it was w- then with the teaching of Jesus and the second commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so people so self-consumed began to think, how can I love my neighbor as myself if I don't love myself? And so I need to spend time learning to love myself so I can begin to love my neighbor in a, in a way that is proper. And what Jesus is saying here is that we're to love our neighbor just the way we already love ourselves, to look at our neighbors and say in any situation that they're in and say, if I were in their shoes, what would I want somebody to do for me and then to do that? But by trying to add that third commandment of now I need to love myself, and we already love ourselves enough, and the need that we have is to take our focus off of ourselves and put it upon other people and serve them, make life better for them, the problem is if you get stuck on that learning to love myself, that'll take a lifetime. And, the, and, and it'll take a, a life's resources. There will never be enough left over. I will never, ever get to loving other people. My whole life will be spent, spent uh, self-consumed. And that Jesus here, I think it's great. He says, the first, the second, these two commandments. It's just like, don't add a third to this, Uh, It's perfect, just as it is. And while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus, in essence, says, Well, listen, while I've got you all here, there's kind of a question I've been wanting to ask you. And he said to them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? What's your understanding from the Scriptures of who and what the Messiah, uh, who he is and what he will be when he comes? And they said, our understanding, what we think about the Christ, is that he will come as the son of David. That is, he will come from the bloodline of David, but when he's born into the world, he will not be divine. He will simply be a good man, a good man born from the bloodline of David. And that is a prevailing view among most religious Jews, certainly in Israel today. They do not believe that the Messiah is going to be divine or the Son of God, but that he will simply be a a great man uh, from the lineage of David. And so they lay this out to him. They said to him, the Son of David. And then he said to them, all right, I've got a problem with that. How then, and he goes to Psalm 110, great messianic psalm, how then does David in the Spirit, here's Jesus ascribing the the, the authorship of the Old Testament to the Holy Spirit, how then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, quoting from Psalm 110 verse 1, David writing, the Lord, that is God the Father, Said to my Lord, David writing this, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Here you have Jesus, Here you have David speaking to the Father, and then speaking of the Messiah and calling the Messiah Lord. David is the greatest king in the history of the nation of Israel. And so somehow, if he is going to call the Messiah Lord, he must be something more than a great man from his bloodline. He must be more than a man. And so Jesus uh, drives home the point, if David then calls him Lord, how is, he, how is he his son, that is merely his son or merely a physical descendant of him? And so he's declaring to them, even David spoke of the fact that when the Messiah came, he would be more than just a great man uh, uh, and a great king, he would also Uh, be divine. And for David to call someone Lord in that way was a recognition of that. And then when they hear this, no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. What's the old saying? When you've been put down, sit down. And uh, that's exactly uh, what they did. They threw their best three shots at him in all of this. They did it publicly. They had no dream that they would be publicly humiliated again. These are not the guys that set themselves up to be humbled, uh, even in a private environment, let alone a public environment. And uh, that's exactly uh, what has happened here. He then comes into chapter 23, and it's one of the most scathing chapters in. Uh, all of the Gospels where, again, important to realize this entire crowd, you see, then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to His disciples. This crowd stays there and so do these uh, scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians. Everybody stays present. And while God has this, while Jesus has this uh, crowd here, has all of them together, He's going to make it a teachable moment. And now he turns from the religious leaders uh, doing an inquiry related to him. Jesus now turns his attention. You notice, and he speaks now no longer to the religious leaders. He will later in this chapter... But he speaks now to the multitudes who are listening, and he speaks to his disciples, and he begins this long series of warnings against following the uh, ways of the uh, of the Pharisees and of the scribes, and in uh, verses uh, two uh, all the way through to. Uh, verse 12. In those verses He speaks directly to the multitudes, to His disciples, warning them against Uh, the religious leaders and how God is being represented through them. And then uh, following there in verse 13 through the rest of the chapter, it's a series of woes where Jesus then turns from talking to the multitude to addressing the scribes and the Pharisees publicly uh, face-to-face and pronouncing a series of eight woes uh, upon them. And so uh, Jesus begins now to... um, to uh, to expose them in this way. And as we look at this list, and we're not going to go to any kind of depth related to it, but I do want to bring out just the, the core issue that he's addressing that is displeasing to him. And it's important for us to look at this and not say, well, those awful, terrible Pharisees and scribes, or those uh, stupid idiots? Why didn't they, you know, recognize Jesus and why? And, the, and to just look and say and put them way over here and then, then to miss the, um, uh, what the passage can teach to us. I don't know about you. You can speak for yourself. But I have a Pharisee inside of me and I have a scribe inside of me And he's plenty big and he's plenty strong. And I need the Scriptures to speak against that. I have a a Sadducee that's in me as well, though he's not as strong as the Pharisee. And so this has something to speak to all of us. All of us are endeavoring to represent God as Christians in this world. And it's a wonderful list to go through and to realize these are things that we must avoid uh, in our lives, if we are to properly represent the, the Lord uh, in the world. And so we're going to look at what he says to them, but then it's good also to personalize it related to our own lives. He deals with the first flaw of, uh, the, uh, uh, of these religious leaders, and he said in verse 2: the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, and therefore whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. And here he confronts their hypocrisy. They taught one thing and they lived something else. When he talks about the Pharisees sitting in Moses' seat in the ancient world, the teachers sat and the students stood. And so he's talking about the fact that when they taught, in general, their teaching was fairly reliable, but they didn't live lives that were remotely close to what it was that they were teaching. So he begins with hypocrisy and denouncing hypocrisy because it's probably the the single greatest thing that destroys our witness as a Christian and misrepresents the Lord is to give the appearance... Of being one thing or saying or teaching one thing, and yet I live an entirely different life. So it's easy to look and say, yes, they were, fair, they were hypocrites. He's going to denounce them as hypocrites over and over again later in the chapter. But to allow it to just search our hearts for a moment tonight, is there any… none of us are going to be perfect, but is there in our lives tonight, are we settling into that game of believing something and teaching something, and yet the life that we live is something that's utterly inconsistent with with that. And it's something that we've settled into, and it's deliberate. We're all going to fall short of the biblical standard, but it should never be deliberate. And if we've gotten ourselves into the clutches of hypocrisy and living a life of hypocrisy tonight that it's important to recognize that it won't have any better end in my life than it will that it had in their lives, and so to repent of it this evening. And so they had this high talk and low walk. It was hypocrisy acting, and Jesus denounced it. The second thing that he denounces is very interesting, if there's any kind of a priority and order uh, uh, related to it. He said in verse 4, "'For they bind heavy burdens.'" on people, hard to bear. They lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Here he's talking about legalism. And what the Pharisees and the religious leaders did is they took simple commands that God gave in His Word, and then uh, they looked at those commandments and they made them more demanding than they already were. That's what legalists do. They take, God says, thou shalt not, and they say, alright, thou shalt not, and then they add their own, uh, burden to it, their own kind of, Uh, requirement related to it, and they make the Word of God stricter or more demanding than it ought to be, more of a burden upon people. It's a tremendous tendency. It's been a plague of Christianity forever and ever. It remains one in the world today and how Christianity is terribly misrepresented by legalism. God knows what He says in His Word. He knows what He commands Thou, shalts, thou shalt, thou shalt not. He does not want our help by taking our personal legalistic views uh, and interpretations related to his commandments and then adding them to the demand of the commandment and then requiring that of everyone else. And so it's important to steer clear of that. And, and, and the person who has the desire to be spiritual, has a desire to really please God, they're eager to be like this, I want to live for God, I want to make a difference, That's the kind of person that sometimes is most often susceptible to this kind of thing. And the idea is if obeying God's commandment as he says it here is spiritual, then taking it even further must make you super spiritual. And then ultimately it becomes, as it did with the Pharisees, is it now becomes a badge of spirituality and a proof that you're serious about God. And if you don't do this thing that they've added or this tradition that they've added to God's commandment, then you're not serious about God. God does not want the help and so the legalism. And and then he goes on in verse 5, "...but all of their works they do to be seen by men and so here is the motive of doing, uh, walking with God, serving God, and, and so forth with a motive of being seen by people. They make their phylacteries broad and they enlarge the borders of their garment. And so here is uh, living for God, serving God with a desire to, uh, to be seen by men, uh, self-promotion. When it talks about here uh, the phylacteries, they make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garment. In the Old Testament, again, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, the Lord uh, wrote in there and talked about, you know, uh, uh, you know, putting the Word of God up against your forehead and on, uh, on your right hand and so forth. And uh, they took that literally and they made these little boxes in which they would take the Scriptures, most often the Shema or the Ten Commandments, put it in the box, and then they would have this wrap it. you see it in Israel all the time today and the little boxes on your forehead and then they wrap it up with ties or they put it on their right hand and they wrap it a whole series of straps and the Word of God is there and they've taken it literally. And uh, uh, the Lord was speaking figuratively related to this and it was basically saying, listen, make sure the Word of God dominates your thinking and it dominates your doing. But they took it literally and then you know if Rabbi Shimmai is wearing a little box on his forehead, or on his right hand, and it's only one inch cube, uh, then I'm going to get one that's a two inch cube because I'm more spiritual. And this shows that I'm even more serious about God than Rabbi Shimmai. And pretty soon they've got like uh, a tomahawk box, you know, shoe box on their forehead. I mean, it got, just got crazy. The tassels, God had spoken to them in the Old Testament, and He had said, at the border of your garments, your robes. I want you to put a tassel that is blue at the four corners of your robe. And what it was intended to remind them of is every time they looked down and they saw the blue of the tassel, to remind them of heaven, to remind them that they were a heavenly people in the world and to live their life as a heavenly citizen in the midst of the messiness of the world. Well, they moved away from all of that and what it was intended to communicate and remind them of, and they just started getting bigger and bigger tassels on their robes as an evidence of saying, look, this is... uh, uh, you know, this shows how serious I am about God and and is a form of, of self-promotion. Wow, look at that tassel, you know, and look at that phylactery. And a lot of that can happen. And if, if there is in, in our service the Lord, if any of us serve the Lord out of a desire to be seen by men, it is always something that needs to be recognized, and it just needs to realize it's a danger to me, deal with it between us and God and uh, move it far away from us. We'll start to do goofy kind of things that misrepresent God under that motivation. They love the best seats at the feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. Here's the love of prominence, the love of public recognition. This can be very, very addictive in the uh, public parts of the body of Christ, for instance, what you know, what I do in the body of Christ in terms of teaching the Word of God and, in a room and and so forth. Uh, the microphone can be a narcotic and a, a, a very very uh, serious one. And so this desire for public recognition, uh, that's something that uh, everyone needs to be uh, very careful of. They love the greetings in the marketplace. They love to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi, which means teacher or it means uh, you know, honored uh, teacher. It means master. So they liked being uh, greeted with rabbi, rabbi. Uh, they liked uh, titles and, and had a, a, spef- a special uh, and unhealthy love for titles. Jesus' commentary, uh, again, speaking to the crowd concerning uh, all of them, concerning the religious leaders, He said to them, uh, but you do not uh, be called rabbi. Don't be called teacher or master teacher, for one is Your teacher, and that is the Christ God. And you're all brethren. We're all just individual members of the body of Christ. And one of the dangers of titles is is that it begins to make us think that someone is more spiritual than another part of the body of Christ simply because they have a title. And that's not necessarily uh, true at all. I think about um, uh, half of, I'm not going to go there, I'll get in trouble for saying that. And uh, it doesn't advance the point. See, I'm learning. <laughs> it's good to be self-aware every once in a while. And and so he said, stay away from it. You're all brethren. This just separates in that way. And especially if you like a title, uh, you know, for the idea of being thought of as better or, or than uh, other, other Christians or more spiritual. Do not call anyone on earth uh, your father. This is in a spiritual context. You could still call your dad dad. Um, but it's talking about uh, a religious father. This is violated today in spades. Uh, For one is your father, he who is in uh, heaven. And so the idea is there is God in Christianity and there is the rest of us. And nobody needs to be developing a middle category uh, b- uh, between those two, there's God and there's the rest of us, and these titles just make things uh, messy and they confuse. Uh, they confuse things and do uh, do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. And uh, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so Jesus said the way to greatness in the body of Christ is not to try and get a title within a church somewhere, but to simply be a servant for God, and that's where greatness is found. Now he turns to the Pharisees and the scribes themselves, and he pronounces eight woes uh, upon them, And for what he has observed in them. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrite, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourself, that is, into the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus was offering, nor do you allow those who are entering in. So not only were the scribes and the Pharisees refusing to put their faith in Jesus and become his disciple, but they were now had become an obstacle to anyone doing so. So this was affecting not only their own salvation, but affecting the salvation uh, uh, of uh, uh, others. And so as opposed to being a help to people coming to know God and the God of the Bible and have a relationship with him, they had become a hindrance to that. And again, he's speaking to them, but he wants the crowd to be uh, hearing all of this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, therefore you will receive the greater condemnation." And here he speaks to their greed. The amount of money that was being made uh, by the religious system in Jerusalem in Jesus' day was—it was just staggering. It was in the hundreds of millions of dollars a year that were being made at the temple in the exchange of the money and the selling of the animals and so forth, and all of it was flowing into the pockets of the whole uh, hierarchy of leadership within uh, the, the uh, Judaism at the time, and so uh, here he speaks to their greed and uh, and the motivation of greed in their ministry. They would pray. They would pray these um, prayers. Give one appearance outwardly, and the whole time they're just thinking about how can they separate people. Uh, from their money. Sometimes, I've been in church services before, not often, but I've been in uh, in things where I sat down and the pitch begins to come related to money. I can see it coming like 20 minutes out. And... uh, And I don't mind an honest request for money. I don't mind it at all. I just don't like people to do something to me to try and manipulate me related to that. And I see all of that going, and I'll go back and I'll take my wallet and I'll put it in my front pocket. I've got a religious pickpocket, you know, in the room right here. And some people on Christian television are so adept at this, it's separating. And these are the worst people of all, and Jesus is talking about here, trying to separate older people and widows from their retirement money and their social security, separate them from that. I mean, sometimes I watch the television and I wanna make sure my wallet is in my front pocket. Greed is an awful thing. Uh, to be present in uh, someone who claims to represent God in a leadership position, and they were very, very greedy. "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, that is one convert, and when he's won, you make him twice as much a son of hell.'" That means he's uh, uh, twice as likely to end up in hell as yourself. You destined him for hell. And so here you have these religious leaders of the Jews and to come in contact with them, and into contact with their teaching, and they work very hard to produce converts and proselytes, and uh, and and so they work very hard to do that. But then they bring these people who are susceptible to legalism and a legalistic system. They bring them into that legalistic system, and being bent on legalism themselves, they then take the legalism to the next step, even beyond. And then here they are now, rather than being helped and led away from legalism into a a genuine relationship with God, uh, they're farther away from knowing God or being saved than anyone else who had never come into contact with the scribes of the Pharisees. And that's all over our city today. And I'll give you two examples of it, Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons. They are harder to get through to and save than any drug addict you'll find in this town or any prostitute or any, 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 you fill the blank in. Because they've been indoctrinated by this kind of person who has now, through the indoctrination, moved them farther away and made it harder for them to be saved because of that indoctrination than as if they had never come into contact with the religious leaders of those institutions. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold in the temple, he is obliged to perform it fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or uh, or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, they said, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? And therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it Uh, by it and by all uh, things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. And this uh, to me is a denunciation of what I would call uh, in religious leaders and in Christians in general is this thing called being a wordsmith. And that's what's going on. One of the things that I think the longer we walk with the Lord, and certainly those of us who teach the Word of God, the longer we teach the Word of God, the more clever we can become at taking away uh, the weight of a passage, uh, one that's supposed to exhort or have a sting related to it. You just learn how to do this, and you learn how to teach a Bible study that never... Uh, stirs anyone, it never provokes anyone, never convicts anyone, certainly never offends anyone. You just, you just learn how to do that. And there's a lot of pressure to do that today, by the way, because this is a very uh, politically correct environment. I mean, if the comedians are no longer playing at college campuses because the audience has become too PC, what happens to a pastor there or a Christian there? So, there's a lot of this that can go on, and it was going on in those days uh, a- as well. And, and what they were doing here is when they, the, these the scribes and the Pharisees would take an oath or they would swear to do a certain thing, when you did that, you always swore by something that was greater than yourself. And so that's why people will say, I swear to God on, on a stack of Bible or on my mother's name or my mother's grave or whatever it is, you're, you're, you're swearing by something greater to, than yourself. And so they had devised all of these kind of fine lines of distinctions as, uh, as ways to invalidate their oaths in case they needed to invalidate them or get around their promises. And so they set up this system that If someone swore by the temple or by the altar of the temple, then that vow meant nothing to them. They didn't have to keep that vow. It was an inside secret, though. And so it appeared that they were making a binding oath when they swore by the temple or by the altar, but inwardly they had no intention of keeping it because how they had worked it out in their whole mind, it wasn't a binding vow. But if you swore by the gold of the temple or the gift on the altar, then you would be bound by that oath. And so here they are claiming to represent God, and they're creating a way within their religion to get around keeping their promises. And what Jesus does here is He declares to them that any oath based on the temple or the things in the temple, it was binding because behind the temple was the one who dwelt in it, God. And it wasn't the gold that gave the temple its significance, it's the presence of God that uh, did so. And additionally, Jesus declares here that making an oath by God's throne uh, for that oath, that was also binding because of the one who sat on the throne. And what they were doing in this whole Simon Says and ridiculous uh, verbiage that they were engaged in, it was deceptive and it was dishonest. and and thus Jesus condemned it here. He said, woe to you scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without uh, leaving the others undone, blind guides who strain out a gnat and they swallow a camel. And so this is uh, the, uh, we would call it, they began to major in the minors and minor in the majors. So every day they were very careful, they got their Cheerios out and then they were going to, you know, put a little bit of herbs on it or on their toast or whatever, they'd make a, a great show of uh, covering 90% of it that they've gotten from their garden, whew, blow away the 10% and then put it upon their toaster, on their spaghetti or whatever it might be, and, uh, and everyone will go, wow, look how spiritual, you, you know, they are in that, and yet in their treatment of people in terms of justice and mercy and in terms of faith, this meant nothing uh, to them. And so that's what legalism does. It turns it upside down. It always makes us start to emphasize and focus on what is a relatively insignificant issue, and because we can only focus on so much uh, at one time, we then lose sight of what is really important. And in past decades when Christianity in the United States of America was, uh, so to speak, kind of everybody pulling their hair out over whether women could wear pantsuits or makeup or men could have long hair during the hippie movement or whatever, uh, that's what happens. Then that becomes the whole focus of the church or a person's Christianity rather than the weighty things, the meaty things of Christianity, justice, mercy, and faith. They had no sense of proportion, how to rightly divide the word of truth. "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish.'" but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee first cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish that uh, the outside may also be clean uh, uh, also, that that the outside of them may be clean also. And so here is the difference between Christianity and religion. Religion emphasizes uh, the outward cleanliness, and uh, to the neglect of an inward cleanliness. Christianity is about the Holy Spirit coming into our lives, cleaning us, and sanctifying us from the inside out. When the heart is right, when the inside is right, then the outside is going to take care of itself. Religion looks and says, we're going to tackle the evil heart or wicked heart or temptation the opposite way. We're going to try and get you into some kind of an external conformity with the hope that it will change your heart. It never works. And that's what they did. The key is is for the heart to be changed, and then you'll have both the inside and the outside. uh, clean. "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and you adorn the monuments of the righteous, and you say as you do this that if we had lived in the days of our fathers, then we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets.' It was a very dangerous business to be a prophet. I don't know, you know, you can go online and Google it and say, what are the, you know, ten most dangerous jobs in the United States of America? You know, how many you are going to do that right after the service? You won't get anything else out about the sermon, but you can't wait to get to a keyboard and find out what are the top three. But anyway, um, in the Old Testament, it was super dangerous to be a prophet for God. And not because of the Amalekites or the Edomites or the Perizzites, but because of the Jews. They tended to kill their prophets. And Jesus was speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees and saying, you look back on history where your fathers killed the prophets for simply telling you what God, uh, God's message to you, and you say to yourself, well, if we had lived then... We would never have done that, and yet what Jesus is declaring, you're about to do something that your fathers would have never dreamed of doing. You are in just a few days going to crucify your Messiah. You're going to outdo everyone of your fathers in the Old Testament, and so you know he's he's getting very very. Uh, here, and therefore you are witnesses against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. And fill up then the measure of your father's fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpent brood of vipers. Now listen, I'm I'm looking forward to maybe hearing. Uh, Hi, Damien. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. I never want to hear. I would never want to hear these come out of Jesus' mouth. And again, we talk about the revelation talks about the wrath of a lamb. What does it take to provoke a lamb to this place? And yet they've done it. They've done it. Because the stakes are so high. Eternity. It's a big deal to claim to represent God. And as big a deal for us because we claim to be Christians and represent uh, Jesus. And so he said, serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape because of this condemnation of what you're doing, uh, the escape, the condemnation of hell? Judgment is coming to you, and therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, scribes, some of them you will uh, kill and crucify. This is called the book of Acts, by the way and then uh and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues jesus is going to send them he's not talking about old testament here and uh and you will persecute them scourge in, you'll scourge in your synagogues persecute from city to city and that on you may come all the righteous blood shed in the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berkiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this uh, generation. And uh, ultimately, uh, of course, uh it, it did in the in the form of uh, the judgment upon uh Jerusalem and so here they are they they uh uh, are, are in this spiritual condition. They are not repentant. Uh, the, the nation as a whole, uh, largely speaking, is, is not repentant. They're going to compound the evil of their past in terms of how they treated God's prophets in the Old Testament now by crucifying Jesus in just a few days. And he knows the judgment that's going to come. And so he cries out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I mean, what a, his heart is just broken. And it's broken over the price they're going to pay for rejecting him as the Messiah. And this is just Jerusalem. This isn't talking about the white throne judgment of Christ. When individuals stand before him to be judged for their rejection of him. Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often, and then just underline those three words in your in your mind, how often I wanted to. This was God's will not willing that any should perish but that all would come to repentance. I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings." That's what Jesus came and desired to do for Jerusalem and the Jewish people in addition to the whole world and then look at it, but you were not willing, and it broke his heart And see, he said, your house, speaking of the temple, is left to you desolate. It's going to be destroyed. And I say to you that you shall see me no more uh, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In 70 A.D., the... Jewish people, a, a, a portion of them, uh, rose up in rebellion against Rome. Rome sent their military into Israel and, uh, and meted heavy destruction out upon the land for their rebellion against the Roman and government and the, uh, you know, kind of the ultimate Uh, battle that was fought, was fought in Jerusalem and around the area of the temple, and Titus came in with his Roman legions, and by the time he was done, Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was completely destroyed and Jesus speaking to that them here to them long before the event occurring this is all coming and I have I had come to spare you of all of that it is important to notice in verse 39 that he said I say to you you shall see me no more till I say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord god has not done finally and ultimately and completely with the jewish people uh, they're they going to recognize, many of them will, Him as their Messiah at His second coming. Now here in chapter 23, as we come to the end, end of it, Jesus now concludes His public ministry. He will no longer talk to a crowd. He will no longer talk, talk to an open group or teach them anywhere. That's over. He will talk and He will teach uh, significantly to His disciples. But His speaking to the multitudes that uh, that pas- this passage brings all of that uh, uh, to an end. I think that if you sit here tonight and you are not yet a Christian, you know there are a lot of excuses that people give for not becoming christians and uh, but one of the main ones, at least in the past has always been i don 't want to become a Christian because all Christians are um, hypocrites, and so there 's the rejection of hip- Uh, Christianity on the basis of hypocrisy among God's people. I think that people misunderstand hypocrisy today because hypocrisy is pretending to be one thing and then deliberately being something else. I think today people's standard has become something entirely different. If they see any imperfection in a Christian, they view that as hypocrisy. Every Christian should be perfect, and then when they're not perfect, they're just being a hypocrite. It's It's awful, really, just awful thinking related to that. But that's the excuses that people hide behind in order to have nothing to do with Christ or Christianity or with Christians, and they use that uh, as an excuse. But it is important for you if you're not yet a Christian and something like that is your excuse to realize that where there is true hypocrisy and, uh, and to realize that Jesus dislikes it even more than you can even... Come to dislike it, and how he denounces it here, and how he dislikes so much among. Uh, the religious systems that I think even today as we stand up and claim to represent him, and yet these things characterize our lives or our ministries. And what you have to realize is that you must not accept or reject Jesus as your Savior on the basis of who or what anyone else is or even what churches are, but on the basis of Jesus alone. Jesus alone is described in the Scriptures as the faithful and true witness of God, the singular faithful and true witness. What you do with Him and what you do with Christianity must be based solely upon the conclusion you come to concerning Him and not the rest of us who are trying to do our best to represent Him in this world. If you're not a Christian tonight and you'd like to become a Christian or you have questions about that that you'd like answered, there'll be pastors and other men and women up in front who'd love to answer those questions for you and pray with you to become a Christian tonight. If you need prayer for anything tonight, they'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together. If the worship teams come forward, that would be great.